This talk was recorded by Insight Meditation South Bay in Mountain View, California. The speaker is Shyla Catherine. For more talks and information, visit www.imsb.org. The topic of tonight's discourse is Nibbana. And I'd like to just reflect a bit on Nibbana and this term. Nibbana is a Pali term. In Sanskrit, you're probably familiar with the word nirvana. I mean, there's even perfumes called nirvana. There are spas called nirvana. There are a surprising number of things in the West that have been associated with the term nirvana. But nibbana is a lot less known as the Pali language. It's actually difficult to reduce nibbana to a simple definition. Even in the texts, we find nibbana described as profound, hard to see. In the middle-length discourses, Sutta number 26, we have the Buddha reflecting on his own experience of awakening and describing that experience. And he says, I considered this Dhamma that I have attained is profound, hard to see, hard to understand, peaceful and sublime, unattainable by mere reasoning, subtle, to be experienced by the wise. But this generation delights in worldliness, rejoices in worldliness. It is hard for such a generation to see this truth, namely, the stilling of all formations, the relinquishing of all attachments, the destruction of craving, dispassion, cessation, nibbana. We find nibbana mentioned quite frequently in the suttas. Do you know what it is? Do you know what it means? Are you comfortable with the term? Do you feel at ease, at home with the term? To talk about Nibbana, I first have to talk about what it is not. Nibbana is not a place. It's not an idyllic heavenly realm where accomplished Buddhists go to retire. It's also not a thing. It's not a thing that has shape or color, substance, mass. It's not something that occupies a location or exists for a duration. Nibbana is also not annihilation. It's not an annihilation of existence. It's not an annihilation of life. When we find the references to Nibbana as associated with the stilling of all formations, this does not describe death as we know it. It does not describe a kind of Armageddon or destruction of the world. Quite the opposite. The destruction of craving is the ending of attachments. It's the ending of ignorance. So Nibbana may not be a thing in terms of space and time, but it can be known. It can be realized. As the Buddha said, It is to be experienced by the wise. That experience is described as a limitless state of peace. 
One of the few places in the discourses of the Buddha where we find Nibbana described very directly is in the Udana, Sutta number 8, 8.3. There is an unborn, uncreated, unconditioned, and unformed. If there were not, there would be no escape possible here for one who is born, created, conditioned, and formed. But since there is this ultimate reality, unborn, uncreated, unconditioned, and unformed, escape is possible for one who is born, created, conditioned, and formed. So it seems to present a rather definite description of Nibbana. says what it is, what it makes possible, but... Does it make Nibbana any clearer to you? My favorite definition of Nibbana is very practical. It's found in the Samyutta Nikaya, um, Samyutta 38, Sutta number 1. That which is the exhaustion of greed, of hate, and of delusion is called Nibbana. It's a beautiful sentence, isn't it? That which is the exhaustion of greed, of hate, and of delusion is called Nibbana. Mm. Now, Bhikkhu Bodhi suggests in the introduction to the Middle Link Discourses that the scarcity of descriptions of Nibbana was intentional. Why? One reason he proposed is that being unconditioned and transcendent, Nibbana doesn't lend itself to being defined easily through linguistic concepts. But another objective might be more practical. He proposes that the Buddha urged his disciples to realize the end of suffering for themselves and to not adopt a belief in Nibbana, to not worship it as an ultimate state of awakening, an ultimate state of being, to not take it on faith alone that liberation is possible, but to realize it for oneself. We find Nibbana described as being the highest bliss, the supreme state of sublime peace, the ageless, the deathless, the sorrowless supreme security from bondage. It sounds great. It's described as paranasukha, the ultimate ease, supreme happiness. When we consider and reflect on the happiness of Nibbana, the peace of Nibbana, this can create a strong incentive to practice the path. When the Buddha was reflecting upon his own path of development, he said, before my enlightenment... While I was still only an unenlightened bodhisattva, I thought, why, being myself subject to birth, aging, ailment, death, sorrow, and defilement, do I seek after what is also subject to these things? Suppose, being myself subject to these things, seeing danger in them, I sought after the unborn, the unaging, unailing, Deathless, sorrowless, undefiled, supreme release from bondage, Nibbana. 
Reflecting on the potential to realize Nibbana helped turn his attention away from the mundane, transient attainments to seek the supra-mundane realization of release. Now, the discourses that I have quoted have described what Nibbana is as it's known, as it's experienced, what it is to experience Nibbana. They mention the stilling of all formations, the relinquishing of all attachments, the destruction of craving, dispassion, cessation. These are things one can experience, one can know. Nibbana may be equated with the cessation of suffering, with the ending of craving, and yet Nibbana certainly is not the inevitable experience every time craving is absent in the mind. Because Nibbana is so difficult to reduce to language, traditions have tended to describe it in rather different ways. One of the many different views regarding Nibbana is to consider whether it is transient or imminent. Is it transient beyond the conditioned world? Or is it the underlying source of all manifestation? Is it imminent? within all forms, all formations. Some teachers use this language of imminence, emptiness as the ground and source of all being, a state of peace that is always already present. Punjaji, my teacher in India, used to like to speak of the, one of the verses of Kabir, where he talked about a fish, And he would say, how can a fish cry out, I am thirsty, while it's living in the water? Because when it opens its mouth to say this, to express its suffering, to express its craving, to express its desire, at that moment, too, the water fills its mouth. There's this sense that one is already abiding like a fish in the ocean of Nibbana. Now we also find that the Korean master from the 12th century, Chinul, used this kind of language when the Nibbana is described with the nature of mind is unstained, originally whole, and complete in itself. It's a beautiful style of expression. It can be quite moving, inspiring, But it does have a bit of a danger to it because it sounds like Nibbana is an eternally existing thing. We only need to find it. We only need to open to it. We only need to get it. Clearly, though, Nibbana is not a thing. It is not a place. It is not a pure plane of existence where we will dwell or where we will be reborn. Sometimes we also hear teachers speak of Nibbana as transcendent, as above, beyond, apart from this world, quite removed from ordinary matters. It's a different language, a different perspective to struggle with how to describe this realization. Of Nibbana. 
I see it as more of a shift in perspective, a radical shift perhaps, that occurs maybe for just a brief moment, but has the effect of altering our relationship to every subsequently perceived experience. Now, if you'll indulge me, I'd like to take a few minutes to describe some of the poly terms and the classical definitions. They might give some clues as to how Nibbana is understood. Most commonly, we'll find Nibbana defined as coolness, extinguished, the cooling of reactivity, the cooling of the fires of lust, of anger, passions, and ignorance. There's this extinguishing of the fires, extinguishing of sensual preoccupation, that cooling down of defilements. Now, this term cooling, extinguishing, comes as we look at the term nirvana. Nir means to cease or to end. Vana can be understood to mean to glow. Therefore, we could have to blow out, to extinguish, to cool down, to stop glowing. In ancient times, it seems that, in the time of the Buddha, it seems that Nibbana was not a really exotic spiritual term. It wasn't very esoteric. It wasn't reserved only for very special spiritual teachings. It was rather ordinary language. I was told that one might say in common parlance, let the soup Nibbana, let the soup cool before eating it. It was that ordinary a term. But certainly, we don't use it as an ordinary term. But this translation of cooling and extinguishing has historically led to the assumption that nirvana was some kind of annihilation. But annihilation is clearly not the meaning of the term. It is not that our life or our existence goes out. Now, there's another linguistic meaning that's possible, that's worth considering. Here, we still have near, meaning to cease or to end, but it's possible to interpret vana as meaning binding or holding. So, therefore, nirvana can be translated as unbinding. And this is Tanisaro Bhikkhu's preferred rendering. He argues that the confusion is not so much the translation of the term, but the translation of the image, the image of fire. In ancient India, he argues that fire was a very potent spiritual image. There were great fire sacrifices that had a very important position in Brahmanic rituals. It was believed that an extinguished fire went into a state of latency, not extinction. The fire extinguished was not annihilated. It was unbound. It was freed from its attachment to the particular fuel that it was feeding upon. So when the Buddha uses the image of nirvana, it was an image of being released from one's dependence upon that fuel, released from what one is clinging to, freed from that dependence of attachment.
The freedom from attachment and clinging to the fuel of conditioned processes could be understood to be what this nibbana-ing is about. A flame that burns dependent on fuel is agitated. When the fire lets go of its fuel, it's released from that source of agitation, that source of entrapment and dependence. It's freed from its clinging and released into a state that is unconfined. But when I was reading about Nibbana and looking it up in various dictionaries and reading, I like to read some of the introductions to the suttas. Bhikkhu Bodhi does a really nice job of writing introductions that precede some of the sections. So I looked up some of the sections where he was dealing with the unconditioned Nibbana to see what he had to say about it. And he had some very interesting reflections. And one of them describes a a terminological consideration, which is to consider the difference in the relationship between two other terms, Nibbana and Parinibbana. Are you familiar with the term Parinibbana? Some of you have heard it. Some of you haven't. Nibbana is usually used to signify the awakening within this life, the realization of Nibbana in the course of our practice while we're alive. Whereas parinibbana popularly refers to what occurs when one who is awakened in life dies. So the Buddha experienced nibbana awakened in life. He taught for 45 years, and then he died at around the age of 80. When he died, that's not called his death, that's called his parinibbana. But Bhikkhu Bodhi follows the argument made by a scholar, E.J. Thomas, who clarifies the point by saying this is an erroneous distinction. He says that the prefix pari converts a verb into an expression of a state so that it changes it into the expression of the achievement of an action so that the corresponding noun, nibbana, becomes the state of release, and parinibbana is the attaining of that state of release. So that's an interesting understanding of it, actually. But the implication of the prefix pari isn't so clear when we look at nibbana in its verb case. Nibayati and parinibayati. There are occasions in the discourses where both nibayati and parinibayati, which is nibbanaing as a verb, are used to designate the act of attaining release, the act of extinguishing, becoming cool. It's not really all that clear. Additionally, the suttas distinguish between two elements of nibbana. There's the Nibbana element with residue and the Nibbana element without residue. What is this? So the Nibbana with residue implies that the defilements of greed, hate, and delusion have been extinguished. However, the five aggregates that are conditioned by previous kama are still functioning. They are the residue. Essentially, the person is enlightened, is awake, but still alive and dragging around this conditioned corpse of a residue. Well, it's not really a corpse yet, but this conditioned body, which is like a a residue. 
The commentaries call this kilesa parinibbana. Now, nibbana without residue implies that the conditioned aggregates of the body and mind are extinguished, and that happens at the death of the arhant. When the arhant dies, there's no force of craving to create further becoming. With no craving for becoming, no birth can occur. And this is said to end the round, the final quenching, nibbana without remainder. The commentaries call this kandan parinibbana. So here we have parinibbana used in the case of both one who is still alive with residue and one who is experiences the final quenching with death. So it seems a little bit inconsistent and unclear. Not surprising that now as we struggle with the English, putting these terms into English, and trying to make sense of it within our culture, it gets even more confusing. The suttas and the commentaries both use this term, parinibbana, to describe both the experience of enlightenment during life and also the death of the arhant, the death of the awakened one. But the philology of the terms can be confusing. But also the interpretation, the meaning, and the significance of the Nibbana within the Buddhist tradition might also be unclear. Although there are different perspectives, and each perspective has you know, some validity, something to consider in it regarding this understanding of Nibbana. I think most people would agree on a few simple things. One, that Nibbana refers to an experience free from clinging. Nibbana is not an aversive rejection of the conditioned world. It implies a steady abiding that rests at ease but is not entangled with conditioned phenomena. It implies an experience of release, a very non-habitual relationship with life, an unconditioned relationship to the unfolding of all experience. I don't mean to say that every act of release is the attainment of Nibbana, I certainly don't believe that every time somebody lets go of an attachment that they are experiencing Nibbana. The realization of Nibbana points to release from attachment and identification with all conditioned phenomena. This term is used to describe a very amazing moment, a potent moment, a moment when the mind that has been reaching towards sensory and mental stimulus for our entire life, if not many, many, many lifetimes, finally stops and turns away from its fascination and preoccupation with all the sensory stimulus, anything of mind and matter. It stops. It turns away from that. In the Anguttara Nikaya, it describes the point when the meditator's mind turns away to be like, it shrinks away from the mental and material. It turns back from it, rolls away from it, and is not drawn toward it. And either equanimity 
or revulsion toward it is established in him. Just as a cock's feather or a strip of sinew thrown into a fire shrinks away from it, turns back from it, rolls away from it, and is not drawn toward it. Nibbana describes the experience when nothing in the realm of mind and matter interests attention. Nothing of mind and matter is taken as the object of consciousness. No experience of the body, no experience of the senses. The five aggregates of feeling, perception, mental formations, consciousness, and the body don't engage the mind. No sensory experience, no thought. About all one might say is that release is the object. The experience of release, the state of peace. But the concept of Nibbana is not taken as the object. The concept of peace is not taken as the object. The act of releasing is not taken as the object. Formless spaciousness is not taken as the object. The mind moves very quickly. Maybe quickly isn't the right word because that puts it in time. But there's a shift, a radical shift from a perception of mentality and materiality when the mind is supported by dispassion, cessation, and relinquishment. There can be a shift, a radically different way of relating to consciousness and the object. And that might be said to be this shift, to realize Nibbana as the object. The Buddha said, Whatever the phenomena through which beings think of seeking their self-identity, it turns out to be transitory. It becomes false, for what lasts for a moment is deceptive. The state that is not deceptive is Nibbana. That is what men of worth know as being real. With this insight into reality, their hunger ends. Cessation. Total calm. This utter absence of reaching for sensory input has an ethical effect. It weakens or eradicates defilements. At the first stage of awakening, the first realization of Nibbana, those defilements include the defilements of identity view, doubt in the efficacy of the practice, and attachments to rites and rituals. At this point, with this realization, it's said that one has entered the stream and can be called a stream enterer, a stream winner, a sotapanna. At this point, the path is clear. Deluded attachments to self have been so weakened by this shift in perspective that the person is no longer capable of an ethical breach egregious enough to cause rebirth in lower realms. Today, we have the opportunity to disentangle ourselves from attachment, to untangle the mind, to unbind the mind from its fascination with the fuel of sensory stimulus. Whether we release completely or only partially, we can be happy with every opportunity to let go.
What is the fuel for your clinging? What feeds your attachments? What seduces you again and again into an obsessive preoccupation with the experiences of mind and body? Are they thoughts about past or future? Obsessions with concepts of what's mine, what's I? The things we like or dislike, hope or expect? Processes of judgment or comparison, craving for this or that? What are your favorite entanglements? What are the processes that keep seducing you again and again to look for happiness in a realm it will never be found? What might you let go of? What might you abandon or release in order to cool out here and now? We can contemplate Nibbana. We can nurture release. We can see what it might be like to live free from clinging utterly free from craving and clinging, even for just five minutes, even for just a day or an hour or a moment. Imagine one day completely beyond grasping. Imagine that state of peace. Why not give ourselves the day? One day, free from all grasping. That's my happy new year wish for you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.